This is episode 66 of Parenting with the Focused Mindset. Today, you get to listen in on a conversation that I had with Roman Prokopchuk, and you probably best know him as being the host of the Digital Savage Experience podcast, but he's also a foster parent, a committed father to so many kids that have been in his home, and he's going to give us the behind-the-scenes look at what it's really like to be a foster parent. But first, thank you for joining us today. I would love for you to subscribe or download so you don't miss any of the solution-focused content that I put out here each and every week just for you. And as you'll hear in this conversation, I learned a lot about what it's really like to be a foster parent. So be ready to share this episode because if you know anyone that is a foster parent, they'll be encouraged by this or anyone that's considering being a foster parent, this episode is great to share with them. And feel free to hop over to my website, thefocusedmindset.com, to get more information. Now let's get started. You've been upgraded to Parenting 2.0. New expectations requires a new mindset. The Focused Mindset. I'm Cher Kretz. I'm a school counselor and a family mindset coach. Raising kids is an amazing journey and things don't always turn out as planned. Still, you get to share your life with an adult in training. This podcast will help you meet every new challenge with confidence and be the best version of yourself in your home and with the people you love. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Roman Prokopchuk. Welcome, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's really great to have somebody who has a passion for parenthood. And the thing that really drew me towards you is uh, your willingness to talk about your experience as a foster parent. But there's a lot more that we want to dig into besides that. But first of all, just first of all, just kind of tell me a little bit about yourself and specifically how you came to become a foster parent yourself with your family and how that all came to be for you. Yeah, so I guess from where I started, first generation immigrant from Ukraine came over in 1990 when uh, uh, Ukraine was still under the Soviet Union with six other family members to a two bedroom apartment, went to school here, I went to college for criminal justice, interned with the Secret Service, basically graduated when the uh, recession happened, economy tanked. Couldn't find anything in terms of uh, criminal justice. So I got an opportunity, pivoted into digital marketing. So 13 years later, founded an agency along the way, worked with a bunch of Fortune 500 clients, uh, seven, eight figure portfolios in terms of marketing spend, managed teams, and then, you know, stumbled upon podcasting, something I really wanted to do. So December of 2017 started the Digital Savage Experience and then through Clubhouse and meeting like-minded people, uh, started a show with two co-hosts called Real Talk Podcasting. Along that journey, uh, I got married, you know, was looking to start a family. We figured out uh, we went to infertility specialist because my wife has a PCOS. So it's obviously harder for her to get pregnant. We went on the infertility journey. So in the last three and a half years, we've experienced five miscarriages, uh, two of which happened on back-to-back Christmases. So now Christmas has that kind of, regardless of how joyous it is, that in the back of your mind, that, you know, traumatic experience. And we thought, you know, let's 
consider foster uh, foster care, being foster parents. My wife actually brought the idea to me, which she usually does in terms of let's do this. And I'm, I'm usually the voice of reason. And she just kind of has the uh, crazy ideas that seem to work. Um, and then we kind of jumped into it, went to an orientation, did the whole process almost a year later in terms of getting licensed. And then May 31st of 2018, we got licensed. Next day, June 1st of 2018, we had two little boys dropped off at our doorstep and basically, you know, figure it out. Uh, since then, we've uh, fostered 25 children, currently have four children in our home. Uh, it's definitely been a blessing and a journey, to say the least. Yeah. Wow. So that whole time you're trucking along being uh being your motivated self and finding what your journey is at, in your career. And on the other end, the other thing that was brewing was uh, just the, the, the need for both of you guys to expand your family and the realization that that's going to be a lot more challenging than you first expected. Right. So you said it was more your wife that led you towards the idea of foster care. But for me as a school counselor and working with so many foster parents and my sister's also a social worker as well, um, you know, that really takes a mindset shift to be able to be okay with bringing individuals into their into your home that have um, a, a past that you're just not aware of that you, you weren't able you know, even if it was a perfect pass, they're not kids that were raised by you. Um, how did you guys make that transition in your mind to be able to be okay with that and have a piece about it? Yeah. So like you said, each child is different. Each circumstance is different. Everything that happens to those children is different. And the way they need you a lot of times is different in terms of you know, feeling safe, starting to heal, that kind of thing. And we are uh, foster to adopt. So technically, obviously, if we have a child in our home, parental rights are terminated, uh, the Division of South Services would come to us first and see if, you know, it makes sense for us to adopt that child. But like you said, the child is basically uh, dropped off at your doorstep and you have to figure it out. Oftentimes, a lot of um, information about the case isn't shared. So a lot of key facts are left out sometimes by accident, sometimes because of uh, privacy and the, you know, particulars of a case. And sometimes because, you know, the, the caseworker didn't want to share it, which she should and would be, would have been a lot helpful for us to help that child. Um, but yeah, we figure out, we drop, they get dropped off and trying to make them as you know safe as possible in terms of usually you have kids around uh, four age and uh, four years old and younger. So usually like preschool age, two, three, four, and we try to make them feel safe, you know, hang out, play in like a common area, have some toys, see if they're hungry. Uh, a lot of the times they are getting removed in the middle of the night. So they're coming with oh. bruises, you know, black eyes, bloody noses, oh my just with the uh, trash can, uh, trash bag, maybe one out dirty outfit, dirty stuffed animal. And we have to bathe them, see like document if there's any marks or bruises, because usually within 24 hours of removal, they need a physical and like a whole, you know, up and down check uh, for, a, you know, a formal kind of evaluation. And then we try to figure out like it's really like monitoring them and, and look, looking at how they interact with the other children in our home. If they're triggered by anything, if you hear them having any nightmares, what they're saying in their sleep, if they're afraid of anything, if there's food hoarding issues, if they were malnourished or, you know, kind of not fed properly. So it's a lot like each case you get a child and then it's like 
theoretically starting like a, in a way, a newborn, because, you know, you don't know anything about them. They're brand new, but they have this history. Like you said, they have a lot of baggage, a lot of scars that, you know, therapy is needed. Sometimes we observe like there's developmental delays and we, you know, advocate for different services for that. So I feel like we spend the most time with the children and a lot of the time within the uh, scope of the case, our voice is the one that's heard the least, which is, you know, sad to say. Wow. So I've never really looked at it from that perspective is that here you are and you're really what you're picturing. I'm picturing like going in blind, even though they, you know, of course you're going to read paperwork and you're going to get the basics still the really depth of what's going on. You're kind of blind to that when you start the journey with the kid. Is that right? Yep. I mean, they call you get a call sometimes in the middle of the night. Sometimes the children, the you know previous foster home can't handle them anymore or they have maybe a, a medical issue or something changed in their family where they have to move, be moved in terms of foster homes. If they're being removed at that instant, you're literally getting a phone call and you really have like two to three minutes to really make a decision and say, yes, you know, we'll, you know, take that child, which is if you make it, uh, I, I feel like it's yeah, a big life decision. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like anything smaller things you think about longer, um, yeah. but yeah, they show up, you, you get a few facts. You can ask a few things on that, you know, on that a call in terms of if there's any medical issues, if there's any behavioral issues, if you can, you know, know anything about why they got removed um, you know, how are they, their behavior, are they in school, so on and so forth? Mm. Are they medicated? <laughs> And we, we've made like a list of questions at this point, because obviously with 25 kids, you have to ask and some things come up when they get dropped off that if we knew before, um, it may have not maybe have been a good fit with the other children we have in our home. Like we have young kids. So if there's an older child that has something like oppositional defiance disorder, Mm -hmm. that's a bad combination. If the other children are fragile or, uh, yeah, mentally delayed or have like frontal lobe syndrome, where we run into situations like that are easily impressionable. So, I mean, there's those situations as well. Yeah. I mean, those are the, that's the side of foster that really we don't hear very often. I think that there's a couple of different I don't know, I guess you could say ways that people view it. Some people see the side of it where they're like, oh, those foster parents get paid to have those kids and they just, and I'm sure that there are a a certain, I'm sure that there's some truth in every, you know, reason why things come up, but you either have that side of things where people kind of have a negative outlook on the people that are a foster parent. And then you have the other side where people have their heart really go out of them, but really go out to them but doesn't really know that the challenges are things that you don't even expect things that you've never, probably never in your whole lifetime expected to have to deal with, or even know what some of these disorders are, let alone have them in your home, in your next room and being dealing with them face hand. That is, how has that changed you? Like, how has that affected you and the way you approach life? Yeah. And, and for the record, in at least in New Jersey, foster parents don't get paid. The children get a stipend. Just Obviously, for the record. probably. Yeah. The, the stipend, I, I guess, can be abused in terms of not utilizing it for the child and doing other things with it. But that stipend is for the child. So for things like activities, different season passes, uh, you know, food, diapers, uh, bedding, clothing, 
anything of that nature, that is what that covers. And oftentimes that's not necessarily enough because we've done things like taking children to Disney World, you know, Six Flags, aquariums, zoos, so on and so forth, road trips. And if you take that approach, that that stipend they wouldn't will do not, anything. Yeah. yeah, it will will not cover it. But from the other standpoint, I mean, it's taught me a lot about myself, my wife. I mean, the ability for us to care for kids that aren't our own, which is one of those things we considered, you know, can we love children that aren't biologically ours? And, you know, sometimes we have, you know, two, three-year-olds dropped off and, you know, they're telling us they're going to whoop our ass and things like that, which <laughs> is, is interesting from a two and three-year-old. And how do you work past that and then, you know, get to a point of healing? So in terms mm-hmm. of like, my personal life and business, I think it's added to like my empathy and my emotional IQ, knowing where these kids have come from. And some of these two, three, four year olds have experienced more in that short lifespan than most adults will, you know, in their whole life. Yeah. So it, it's helped, it's helped me uh, stay grounded and put things in perspective. So if something happens in business, or I'm maybe in a bad mood, just take a step back and kind of think about you know, what the kids are dealing with that are with us currently or have been. And some things that, you know, I may be getting upset about like a passive aggressive email or something not going my way, you know, realizing that it's, you know, kind of trivial at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that, um, we need to have those grounding moments, but we need to recognize them and allow them to actually change us because we can have those moments and just, I've run into, I I had a, 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 what's flowing through my mind is um, I worked with a parent years ago, and this is years, this is before I was counseling. So I was a kindergarten teacher at the time, and I was in school to be a counselor. So I was studying, you know, a lot of this type of stuff. And you know, when you're in your 20s and you're studying it, you're an expert, right? But so she, but she came to me often to kind of talk it out because what this mother decided to do after her kids were raised was she brought on three foster kids that were all brothers and sisters. You know, it was one of those situations where they were anticipating one, but it came in a three pack. I think you've probably been in that situation before as well. And, um, and these particular children did have, a you know, a very, very thick file. We'll put it that way. And the, it was very traumatic to know what these children have been through. And the father reacted so in such an interesting manner that I'll never forget it where the mother dove in and it was her hundred percent passion. And I have to say that I never got the feeling that the dad was sold on the idea. Um, It ended up that they bought a house and he had a whole area of the house that was completely only his, that he didn't let any of the kids in. And, um, and I don't know because they went to our church and I don't know, but I always got that sense to where a father is going to take all of this change very different than a mother will, because they're diving in and you're kind of look at it from a different perspective. How do you think that your perspective is maybe different than a mother's perspective would be? Uh, I mean, like my wife is definitely more nurturing or, I mean, I, I'm coming from like a Eastern European background. So like culturally very stoic, people don't really show emotions, uh, somewhat strict. So, you know, if kids are repeating the same thing over and over again, in terms of like a bad behavior, like I'm more strict about putting them in timeout and stuff like that, where my, my wife may, you know, have conversations with them and, and be a little bit more lenient in that sense. 
But I mean, I feel like we decided on it together and we knew what we we're kind of getting into. We had to do in-class kind of training for, I think it was like 40 something hours. So uh, once a week for like, I don't know how many weeks straight, but like three hours uh, a night, one night. So I think we knew what we we're kind of getting into, but not like as you experience something. So it's one thing to, let's say, read about something and another thing to actually live it. So when we got into it and these situations about like the system kind of failing the kids, you know, butting heads with caseworkers and law guardians and judges and all these other people involved in cases, because all we were trying to do is advocate for the child. Then oftentimes the child has been treated just a number and a case number, you know, in the system those kind of things you can't really learn unless like you live it and you go through those kind of growing pains. And I think it would have been more important at that time if we tapped uh, groups of existing foster parents to really mm -hmm. get an idea of what they're experiencing. So I recommend anyone that gets into foster care, find a support system of foster parents, foster to adopt parents, uh, yeah. you know, parents that do respite in your area as a support. But I mean, I, I think I was a little bit more hesitant, like you said, in terms of opening up to begin with, mm -hmm. because actually like a background about a first case, the first case was positioned. We got a call. Uh, the kids didn't fit apparently in the, the first home that they were placed. They were there for, I believe, three weeks and they had to be moved. So initially we wanted like a baby. I mean, a lot of people like say, oh, you know, I want a baby, whatever. Uh, so that was kind of our mindset. Then obviously that changed along the way. But um, we basically were told, you know, we're the last kind of name on the list. If, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we say no, then they're going to unfortunately have to split the kids up, which, which happens a lot. So if somebody says I can only take one child and that's the only situation. And we thought to ourselves, the only thing they have is each other right now. And are we willing to do that? We said no. And we said, let's figure it out. The also thing that was positioned was we were told, you know, this case is moving to termination of parental rights. Wow. You know, you're going to be able to adopt them set up like pretext, like day one. And then obviously that didn't end up happening. We had them for a year case wow. moved to reunification. We built a relationship with the mom. Actually, the caseworker destroyed that by saying something to the mom that wasn't true. So they went back to the mom. The mom was like distrustful. We kind of bridged the gap with her. And then after they got reunified, my wife, like every month would attempt to reach out, you know, be there for her. And eventually she opened up and we built somewhat of that trust back. So we got to see him a few times stop by. We, you know, the mom did everything she needed to do. Uh, which we are super proud of her, but exactly. it was one of those things that was kind of like the biggest hurts. I think I forget what it's called when you lose someone and you're not losing them to death, but you're losing them in terms of, you know, they're out there, but you mm -hmm. can't have any communication and you still have that kind of, yeah. I guess, hurt and pain li lingering. So I think there's a different way to deal with that grief. I, I spoke to like a counselor or a, uh, a therapist about it. I forget the name of it. But that's when I like in that case, I started opening up. And I think right after them, I kind of hardened up again, because seeing what happened within that case, oh, yeah, knowing that that's like a normalcy now from case and that to that's case. a strong possibility. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it, it's like, how do you open up fully and then be, I guess not because uh, we have to open up fully. And it's like one of those things we know we're going to get hurt. And we get hurt over and over again, because the kids leave not in the sense that like, oh my God, the kids are leaving, but more so caring for the kids and their safety and worrying about where they are. Are they back in the same situation? So there's a little bit of that as well. Well, yeah, because you're parenting, you're still having a, like a mini parenting journey. 
but you, but it's a, a parenting journey that you're not sure how it's going to end or when it's going to end or, or where they're going to go from there. And so it's almost like you have to approach it in a very flexible manner. And that is, that's, that's challenging. That's emotional in and of itself because you're everything within you wants to detach from that and then just get very robotic about it. But what I'm hearing you say is that your heart tells, you no, actually that's not where I need to be. And so there's like this push and pull and you guys choose to give in to the love side of it because that's the right thing to do. Not the easy thing to do. Right. But the right thing to do. Yeah. Caseworkers often say like, don't get attached, so on and so forth. But I would say like, as soon as I get to a point where I'm that like numb to it and can't open up, then I don't think it's the right thing because it's not going to be coming from a, I guess, a position of love. And that may not be the right fit for our lives at that point where like, I'm totally desensitized and like refuse to open up fully because Mm -hmm. of all the experiences I've experienced in those, you know, cases with 25 children. Oh my gosh. Do you sometimes get worried that you are going to get desensitized? I mean, it's tough, but at the end of the day, I guess there's a separation because one, it's not the kid's fault that they're in the system. And a lot of the time there's parties involved that don't have the best interest of the child at heart or Mm -hmm. don't know the fully, because there's so many moving parts that I think a lot of times certain departments or uh, certain agencies or certain people involved with the case do not know all the facts because no one actually got together on one call or one meeting and gave their perspective or their findings. So oftentimes it's scattered information. So they're going by, let's say maybe something that biological parent says and like, oh yes, this is awesome. But let's say a nurse and the, fo- uh, the foster resource parent is seeing something totally different and red flag. So there's like a lot of that, a lot of misinformation and miscommunication that I think if everybody was kind of on the same page, uh, the case would go a lot smoother. Yeah. I think that, um, it can be a positive thing in some ways to look at it. Like you said, where you have a fresh new, uh, baby, if you will, even though they have a history, But that can also be to your disservice because you can approach a situation in a completely inappropriate way because they because their life experience matters and they walk in with something. So you have to adjust your approach, adjust your approach every time a new individual is there. Well, what are we looking at here? Um, I mean, aside from just that, what have you noticed I mean, from a wife's perspective, I'm thinking what might be tough for me, but what's been the biggest challenge you think for your wife in all of this? Let's just start with the challenge. I'm sure there's many blessings as well. Uh, Just kind of frustrations in terms of advocacy. So people not necessarily listening or really actually doing their job only until like you have to scream and contact and copy everybody on emails. And even that, it's just one of those kind of cultures. It's a government agency where there may not be the best workers and you know, the ones that are great don't want to rock the boat or have this, like, I guess they, they compare it to like, you know, some police departments where there's like a bad cop and like, there's a, you know, un, unspoken rule where you don't like snitch them out or, you know, yeah. say anything about it. So you it's similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a government kind of culture where we haven't necessarily had anyone point, 
people out in that sense because they don't want to rock the boat. But yeah, there's there's situations they don't want to commit career, a career suicide and have that kind of like scarlet letter on their case and stuff like that. So, I mean, oftentimes, like there, there's been opportunities for people to step up and really like bring light to things that that didn't happen. Mm. In one case, my, my, my wife documents everything. So every conversation that's love of impact there's it's either done through email or text. So there's a paper trail. So when people say, oh, that never happened and their uh, caseworkers say that or try to throw myself and my wife under the bus, she will write out like a 10 page email and attach every piece of dialogue and just like no one has anything to say. So one such email it happened, we're trying to get services for a child and they said, no, no, no. And they ended up leaving out of like what we're told that the kid has uh, like ADHD and oppositional defiance disorder. That's why he was like beating on the other kids we had and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So she had to write this email, copy the people involved with the case. And then those people, I guess, uh, you know, silently, you know, moved it up in their agency. So like at the end of the day, I believe like 65 people saw it and got to like the commissioner of the division of child services in my state. But then people then started doing things, but like that shouldn't be the case. That's no. such a waste and aggravation yes. where you could have done that to begin with. So there's like frustrations like that as well. But she's tenacious. I mean, geez, you got yourself a tenacious wife. She's like, nah, we're doing this. We're writing this email. We're getting it out there and I'm keeping these notes, right? Yeah, she's she's the calmer one. She's more articulate in terms of like, de- I wouldn't say debate, but like making her point heard. And she's very, uh, like you said, tenacious or uh, doesn't stop until like she gets some kind of resolution and documents everything. So she's very uh, methodical. I mean, she does the same thing. Like we go on vacation. I have like itinerary, the restaurants we're going to eat at, that activity we're going to do when we're going to do it. So like in terms of like documenting everything, like she's great. That's awesome. You know, that's the type of thing that I think that served her well, because she she probably is frustrated and she shares all those frustrations with you. Right. But at the bottom, the end of the day, she did what it took. And I think that good foster parents, when they're leading from love, and I don't, I I don't even like really to use the word good, but I guess nurturing foster parents, you're leading from love, but you also have to do the work. I mean, you can't just sit and I love you, love you, love you, love you. No, she had to write the email. She had to push it out. There are things that you have to actually do logistically to, to make things happen. Right. How does that affect you? I mean, how, what's your role in all of that? Uh, I let her speak because I just get like infuriated because I mean, if I have a conversation, I just straight up say like, if this was in my line of work, like the level of incompetence, you would be like fired a whole while ago. Mm-hmm. Like it's just some of these things that don't make any sense. Like it's like the twilight zone. Like, why would you be doing this? Like situations like, you know, making me go to like the projects and drop a kid off where there's people like lurking around my car looking like they're about to like carjack me and and then say well you know the the judge gave the person the benefit of of the doubt because she has mental issues uh and then you know you you have to be careful how the tone you use or what you say because you know you can't get loud with people but this lady curses people out and that's okay on her her end but if i get passionate about it uh, you know, I can't do that or like getting a, a court order because she's out of her mind and she wants a pair of socks back because she can't find them. Like, that's just like laughable, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other mm-hmm. things like in play in the in the case. And you're just like 
pandering to her and making like her mental illness, not her letting her level her, off. Yeah. Her ma- normalizing mother. it. And then she thinks that behavior is okay. So I feel like biological parents in this, in the, in the process are held to a different kind of measuring rod and don't necessarily do all the tasks that they're supposed to be doing, but it's just mm-hmm. sometimes like good enough to return them. So it's like, yeah. you know, you don't get an A on the test, but you know, you got to, you, you got to see. So that's passing. So that's good enough. You squeaked by. I, I am telling you, I am, I absolutely hundred percent know exactly what you're talking about. I can speak to one situation Um, it's because it's not in my, you know, and there's obviously many things you can't speak about, but this one is more with a friend and, um, his grandkids were, uh, taken from the mother and the little one, because they went to the hospital with, um, the littlest one, which was three months old had broken bones. And the one-year-old also had, um, broken bones. And the two older kids were kind of like covering up that the father had a real anger issue and that the mom would, um, just get so angry with the little ones. And, um, and I watching this process, exactly what you said is what happened is the parent that was actually trying to help the children had to fight four times as hard as the parent that was the one that abused. The, the parent that abused would come in and they would try to give them all the benefit, maybe this and maybe that, maybe the other. And they would listen to the stories. And, um, and it was interesting watching that from my friend's point of view to say, I'm the one that's fighting to help the child and I'm having to do 10 times as much work to do the right thing than they have to do to probably continue in the wrong thing. Does that, is that kind of the type of situations you run across? Yeah, or just like, uh, you know, clothes being kept because that specific child has overnight visits at this point. Uh, they've been in the system for pretty much half of their lives, hopefully mm-hmm. at some point getting reunified. But there is a history of, you know, mental illness. And, yeah. you know, that's kind of a touchy subject. It but is. it's just like, I mean, like, if if you're going to have someone as unstable to make a big deal about socks i don't know if they're ready to get their children back in that situation and then we found out because the child was with a aunt for a year before they came to us because the aunt said i can't handle this so the biological mom got physical and violent with mm-hmm. uh with the mom so then the caseworker's like well you know until it gets violent i'm like are you out of your mind when it gets violent i'm suing you and i'm suing this person i'm yeah putting that's your... a little late yeah <laughs> i'm like that's not how it works how do you guys function like mm-hmm. I know my state, they're being uh, mandated and audited by the federal government because how mismanaged the agency was in the past and, you know, things uh, slipped through the cracks and got in the news. And obviously when it's a national story, then people like we have to do something about it, but Mm -hmm. it is absurd how things go on and function. Like if if any of my job roles or my company, if I did business like that, I would be sued like left and right. It's just ridiculous. Wow, that is such a crazy side of it that I would never be privy to in, unless I was actually the foster. I mean, not from afar, sure, but to just be living in it. And then you have a human life. I mean, we're not talking about a pet dog. This is a human life that's being affected by each and every one of these choices that are made by these this these agencies. And, and you can't hold them accountable. All you can do is just kind of go, ah, because you're stuck in the middle of that system as well as the person fostering. 
Yeah, and like, don't get me wrong, not every caseworker, not oh, every law guardian not. was. We had some yeah. great caseworkers that went to bat that really cared about the kids that were really there and really helpful. But there's like in everything else, there's good and bad. And I feel like until like something happens or there's an overhaul or things are treated differently, like the children are the one that are getting kind of the short end of it. Yeah. And that's what we're, I mean, that's the, and that's my question was to you is about the challenges and, you know, we can't beat around the bush. There's challenges. And a lot of times the challenges has to do with, it doesn't even have to do with the child. It has to do with the system that they're stuck in. And, um, I get that. And I kind of feel like at the end of the day, the only reason why you would ever want to do something like that is because you have a heart for the kid. I mean, why, why not? Why else would you ever do that except for to have a heart for the kids that you guys have seen? And 25 times over, I mean, you guys have had a heart for the children over and over again, and then had to watch them move to their next journey and their next place. Um, I would say Roman, that I'm thinking about how it's so important for us to be able to find peace in those hard times, because I know that when I first became a counselor, um, I was told by my mentor, you can't hold on to these kiddos um, journeys because it'll eat you up. You won't be able to be a good wife. You won't be able to be a good mother. You won't be able to be a good person because you're going to be so burdened by the stories that you hear and the people that come your way. And it's exactly like what you said. I didn't know what my mentor meant until I was in the thick of it. And it takes a different muscle to practice saying, I'm going to care, but I'm also going to understand that this is a journey and that this ending of this journey might hurt, but I'm going to continue on. How have you been able to do that up to now? I mean, how have you, my mind's kind of boggled thinking about it because of the amount of children that you've had into your home. How have you been able to do that? Uh, I mean, just get reset every single time. But like you said, I mean, you know, it's coming, you know, you know, majority of them are leaving unless like the case is moving towards adoption. Or like I said, overnight, a case can change and you think they're, you're going to adopt and the child gets reunified. So it's it's kind of like a reset. I mean, it's like very like if you reset yourself to care and be open, it's like you're somewhat of a emotional masochist in the way because you know that pain is coming, but you do it anyway because you care about the kids. And I mean, it's sad. That's why a lot of good, you know, foster homes, you know, close their doors and stop taking kids and stop fostering because they get burned out. I mean, it's 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 enough to like handle and, and try to be there for the kids, but then having to deal with all these parties involved burn you out because it's like you have to combat people to get the kids, the services and, you know, the attention that they need. And it shouldn't be like that. I mean, everybody involved should be working to whatever's in the best interest of the child. And I feel like sometimes it's not. So the child, the children, you know, are coming with a lot of issues. Don't get me wrong. We've had children for the first time, like frontal lobe syndrome, special mm-hmm. needs, like, you know, violent, abuse this that or the other and like i feel like that is tough to see but you learn how to you know give them what what they need in terms of feeling safe and the love and attention they need but like frustrations with the system and people involved in people's attitudes it's that's tough to change and you get 
numb to it. And, you know, why do I need to be doing this? You know what I mean? Good. You know, I don't need this aggravation. I don't need to be really treated like a criminal because I feel oftentimes criminals at least get the benefit of the doubt and, you know, foster parents get their name dragged this, that, or the other, and have no, really no say majority of the time to really, you know, tell our side of the story. So no, you absolutely don't. And then, and they kind of, Oh, that was the foster parent. They were in foster care. You very rarely hear the name of that person. You know, I mean, when I sit down with children that have been in foster care, I ask them each and every person they've been with, I say, and I ask them to tell me something special about them because um, the child needs to own their journey. And part of their journey is that they were parented by a foster parent and whatever that is. And so, uh, so I hope that as we move forward with the system that we can in our own ways, however we are, whether from your end, from my end as a counselor, from the people that we know, help them remember that, you know, the, the people that are fostering, they are parents to those kids during that chapter in their life. And each chapter is important. Each and every chapter is not to be uh, looked at as unimportant just because it's temporary. You know, we can look back at one memory And for some reason, we keep reliving that memory as a child. You probably have one or two of them, especially with your journey coming here from another country. It's like, why does that particular memory keep popping in my mind over and over again? Well, guess what? Your children that went on their way, it might be a memory your wife put in. It might be you. It might be one that you plugged in one of those road trips. It feels insignificant to the system, but it's such a significant and wonderful thing that you're doing to pour into those child's life for the period of time that you are meant to have them, whatever that might be. Where are you guys at now? Give me a little update. Where, where are you at now? You told me about the first one. Uh, well, we have four children. Uh, hopefully, well, not like hopefully like get them out of here, but their cases are either moving to uh, reunification or finding uh, kinship care where they can go to a family member or close friend uh, until uh, a permanent situation is worked out. And we do have a baby as well that my wife literally picked uh, up from the hospital at two weeks old. He actually turned. Oh my goodness. Yeah, he's he's going to be actually seven months. So we had him. He was born actually the day after me. He was born uh, August 19th of 2020. What? So he'll, yeah, he'll be seven months this, uh, this month. So what is uh, yeah, he was born, he was premature. He was uh, born four and a half pounds with uh, cocaine in the system. And I think it's one of those things where you get a child, if you put them in the right situation and surround them with love, they start thriving. So now he's Uh, 20 pounds he's this little chubby thing he's happy like he's progressing and developing well so i mean it's like with everything like you know you children uh you know a a a person that you feel like may not have potential in terms of an employee but you encourage them you give them the right motivation you put them in the right situation in terms of like figuring out what skill sets they have to thrive so i think anyone can really change I guess to a certain extent, one, if they want to, or like in the situation of a child, putting them in a loving situation where they can really be surrounded by that can make them thrive. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And how, how really, what a cool thing. And I can, I can tell you still have some apprehension because the papers are not signed, but I'm assuming that you're on the journey to possibly adoption with that one or. Uh, it's, it's, it's early. Um, the mom, mom had four of her children already, uh, 
parental rights terminated. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. she has mental illness. She's homeless. She has been on uh, drugs for a good part of her life. So right. she Even can't pregnant, get him back. Obviously. Yeah. So she's identified people that could be the father. So they're going through that process. They're looking for other family members. So like in the whole grand scheme of things, that's what we would like to do because, you know, we've had him since a baby and, you know, we love him and care for him, but we know that, you know, until everything is signed, anything yes. could, you know, be thrown into the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and so you're still kind of in the thick of practicing the mindset that you've been able to uh, have a pleasure of practicing over and over and over again, the, the roots that you're putting and the, what you're putting into this child right now in these seven months, no matter if he's a baby or not, is going to make a huge difference in his life, no matter what the end result might end up being. But, oh my gosh, that would be totally amazing if it ended up in adoption. <laughs> my youngest sister is adopted and uh, she was, her, um, her mother had known that she wanted to adopt but I don't remember why it must've been one of these situations that you're thinking of that uh, they weren't able to right away. The baby was in foster care for the first three months, but um, they had already kind of chosen a mom. Like, you know, it was one of those situations where they had a big old thick thing and they were adopting and the pay. Oh, I want these parents to be my baby's parent, you know, while she was pregnant. And then it took three months and they thought they weren't going to be able to adopt her. And uh, then, you know, it was just like that. They called and said, oh, whatever needed to be released is now released and you can adopt this child. And within two days, boom, she was there and they were signing papers to adopt. So everyone's parenting journey is just so unique and different. Probably that experience with my sister is part of the reason why I have such a passion for families in general and that I really don't, I, I just see all the different amazing family units out there and that you don't know their journey. You don't know if what's going on with them, but you know that they're a family. What would you say? I don't know. Give us some thought. I mean, what would you say to somebody who's just now, they just now sat in that class that you sat in and they just now are sitting together saying, yeah, let's do this. Let's be a foster parent. What advice would you give them? Besides you already said, get a group of people together you know, that was a great, continue with that thought. What, what advice would you give them? Yeah. I mean, I guess just do your own research, read up on it, get different, uh, you know, perspectives. There's a lot of books out there in terms of like first time foster parents and really know about the process. Cause the, the, the point of the, the in-class uh, sessions is to just educate you. They're not going to have like a situation or give you all the facts you may experience and really, scared straight situation where they'll scare half of the class away based on you know this is how it's really going to be if okay. they really told it like it was like 50, there would be like a, a high percentage like a high attrition rate <laughs> they'd be like, like we can't out, do this people yeah yeah we can't do this like this is ridiculous but um yeah i mean it's it's kind of like sunshine and rainbows in there you know everyone's here for you everybody's a support and yeah i've been told a lot of things besides that but yeah like uh books uh, read up online um, find other resources. Like I mentioned before, find a support group. Mm -hmm. And if you really do want to do it, it's, it's definitely rewarding, but it's not easy. It's not one of those things where maybe you watch like uh, that movie blended with Mark Wahlberg. Actually, it came out when um, we got our first placement. So 
some of it was kind of sad because in that movie, like the kids get taken, mm -hmm. uh, they thought they were going to adopt them. They end up getting him back. But it's one of those things that we started thinking about it, knowing our first placement would have possibly been moving to uh, reunification. So yeah. uh, don't really look at uh, movies or TV shows because a lot of that is obviously just for entertainment and, you know, kind of plays on stereotypes a lot of the time. Um, but it's definitely going to be tough. You're going to experience kind of situations of like, why did I do this? But at the, at the end of the day, uh, it's rewarding. It's, you know, one more, uh, loving home for, you know, to, for kids to be at, if that's for permanent, for a short term, for a long term, it's, you know, one more home that some kids can end up and then that, that can impact the kind of the trajectory of their lives. And it stretched you and it's, it stretched you and allowed you to be shaped into the person that you, you know, closer to the person that you're always meant to be, um, through all of these little lives. It sounds like, um, have you ever had a kid, a child come to you that doesn't speak English? No, we have not, but oh, there's a wow. different, like, uh, I guess dimension because we we live close to like the capital. So like, you know, five, 10 minutes, I'm away, uh, away from the state capital. So obviously more bigger cities have like a more inner city, you know, vibe feel. Yeah. So uh, 19 out of the 25 children we've had were black. Mm -hmm. uh, four, four were uh, Hispanic and two were white. Okay. So there's and you like and things... your wife are. Yeah. She's, she's, um, She's mixed. I mean, she's uh, like Portuguese, Eastern she's, European. But so, more or less so. a basic white girl. <laughs> yeah. So there's that dynamic. It's like people looking at you or oh, with yeah. your kids of another race. Yeah. Then there's situations where we're not in control. Like it's actually we we get called and, you know, there's African-American kids or whatever. Are you willing to? We don't care like about no. the race. But then there's situations. Some people have the mindset like, you know, it's like you're trying to be like the white savior taking all these black kids away. Whatever. I'm not in control of that. Like, it's not my fault. The The demographics of the area I live in right. are that. So, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, getting uh, to know and getting used to kids' cultures and different things of that natures and, mm -hmm. and certain conditions that may only run in specific cultures primarily mm -hmm. or ethnicity. So there's a lot of those dynamics as well. Oh my gosh. I mean, we will have to have a whole nother podcast on that one. I mean, this the cultural dynamics alone of what you're speaking of is a whole, you could probably write a book on that because you are learning firsthand and you're saying, wow, there's, have you ever had two kids? Okay. We'll, we'll answer this quickly. Have you ever had two kids that were from a, like one Hispanic and, and one from the black cultural and you notice a clash or a ch something that you anticipate, you think might be a cultural difference. It's been a struggle. No, but we have no? had children like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hispanic kids, African-American kids at once. I think they're just too young. Like if it was their parents, their bio parents and stuff, bring that's it different. up. Like, yeah. Oh, we heard you have a kid that's Spanish with you and he's saying so-and-so this, that, or the other. But in terms of children that young, they just kind of like, they're, they're in the system together. So if they're in our home, sometimes it's kids from different families. We have currently two children that have been in our home from two different families for a year now. Mm -hmm. So they've only had each other. They're the same age. They think they're brothers. Yeah. So it's one of those things where the, if the kids are young enough, they don't really see color or, or a different distinction. They just want to like play yeah. with each other, watch TV and, you know, just be there for each other. So, and be taken care of and have uh, the parents that are taking care of them, you know, and it's, this has been intriguing to me. 
Um, I bet you there are, we've, we've talked to many guests, but you're the very first guest that I've had that's been able to share with us from the foster parents perspective. And I appreciate that because there's a lot of things for us to, there's a lot of compassion that we need to show on others. And one of the things I stand on with the focused mindset is that everyone has a journey. Everyone has struggles. Not a single person is immune to it. And what we need to do is see people as human beings, not as people that uh, are uh, of, of a certain, you know, situation. Oh, they do this and they do that. No, let's be in this together. Let's move forward together and let's be positive in the process. What's one thing, a lesson that you'd like to leave with my listeners? I have a, a lot of parents that are listening to you right now. A lot of people that are a lot of places. What's a lesson you've learned in life that you'd like to pass on right now as we're saying goodbye? Yeah, I think in general, you don't you never know what you're capable of until you get thrown in that situation, kind of a, a trial by fire. And I, I like to learn like that. Um, that's who I am. And before, if you asked me maybe three, four years ago, do you know, you're going to be a foster parent? Is that true or false or whatever? And I would probably say, no, that's, that's crazy. I would never do that. Or let alone, you know, you, you, you would have fostered 25 children up until now in like two years, I would say like, that's ridiculous. So it's one of those things where, you know, we had two, two children dropped off day one and we've had up to six kids in our home and have made it work. So I think you never know what you're truly capable of, I guess, as a parent, as a guardian, a family member, or anything else that you get kind of thrown into, I think you'd be surprised of what you can actually accomplish when you're kind of like just put to the test. Hmm. And maybe more of us need to choose to put ourselves to the test so we can see what we're really made of and, um, and, and live the life that we're meant to live. So tell us how we can find you. Um, what are some ways that if people want to follow your journey or get to know you or maybe have you on as a guest uh, how would we find you? Yeah. So I'm pretty much on almost every social uh, media channel. So you can find me. Um, actually Roman Prokopchuk is a common name in Eastern Europe, common nice. first and last name, okay. but, uh, I think I show up first for everything, I guess, globally. Um, but yeah, you can direct message me. You can, uh, email me. Um, you can email me through my website, Nova Zora digital, uh, contact me through either of my podcasts and, you can find me on Clubhouse most recently, adding mm -hmm. value in terms of podcasting, digital marketing, or having conversations about, you know, foster care and things of that nature as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I do encourage my listeners to find a new show. If every week, find a new podcast and just listening to it, listen to it and see how it enriches your life. And I very much enjoyed listening to the episodes I did of yours. And I strongly encourage everyone to hop on over there. And, um, and all that will be in the show notes, but again, thank you for sharing just a little bit about a, a little slice of your life with us. And we appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks again for having me on. What an interesting conversation with Roman. I learned so much and my heart goes out to him. And I could just hear in his voice how important it is to him that he makes a difference in the life of those children that he touches. And if you're a foster parent, I want to take this moment to tell you thank you. Thank you so much to giving to the kids that need it most in their biggest time of need. And uh, man, if you know anyone that is right in the thick of it, a foster parent, reach out to them. Tell them thank you as well. They need to hear it. They need to hear that they're appreciated. I want to draw your attention to my website, thefocusedmindset.com. I have 
for sale there right now. My mini course, Conversations That Empower. It's actually a very simple course that you can listen to my video and audio training on how to have important conversations like we've heard about that we need to have in all kinds of situations in business, in life, with parents. You can get that there. And thank you for listening today. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, keep in touch and take care.